Well, this past week, friends, the image of chaos presented itself quite forcefully to me. Last Sunday, we talked about Christ ruling at the right hand of God the Father, ruling against all the enemies and forces which wage war against Him and against us. And then in the sermon review time afterwards, one participant recalled the Sunday after the Lewiston shooting, where it was mentioned that the first evidence of the Spirit exhaled from the cross in John's Gospel was not one of power and order, but rather one of witness, one of presence in the midst of chaos. This led to a brief discussion of Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, yet the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Over the chaos that existed before God ordered the creation, the Spirit is said to hover, hover. And in John chapter 1, we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made. So the Word existed at the very beginning, and is present, it seems, with the Spirit amidst the chaos, the waters. Now, I don't know about you, but this season has been marked by chaos, it seems, for many, many of us. I am astounded by the number of injuries, health issues, other emergent needs that have arisen. I'm thinking about you all, but also friends and family members, other members of our communities. And as if the situation in the Ukraine wasn't dire enough, we have the crisis in Israel and Gaza. And we're still trying to manage the senseless violence that breaks out right here in our own communities. Chaos, I think, is a helpful term to describe what this season has been, what this season is for many of us. And what's so encouraging, to me at least, is that Christ has a lot of experience with chaos. Advent is a season, like I said, in which we await the arrival of a God who brings order to chaos. Our waiting takes place in the midst of chaos, a chaos which threatens at times to overwhelm us. As I think about the many things that add up to chaos in my life, it's tempting to want to just give up or give in. But Jesus, as we'll see in Mark 13, Jesus encourages us to stay awake, to remain faithful, trusting till the very end. My hope, friends, is that this morning and the mornings to come will help strengthen that trust in us all. And so we'll begin with a passage in Mark's Gospel, Mark 13, and we'll go on to look at a few other Gospel texts in the coming weeks. So let's get right into it for this morning, but before we do that, friends, let us pray. 
Lord, thank you for meeting us in the thick, the mess of our lives. Thank you for coming all the way down to us so that we don't have to go all the way up to you. Jesus, I pray that you would be present, that you would be visible, tangible for us all this season. Help us to be encouraged by the hope that comes with Christmas and Advent, but also help us to face head-on the difficulties that mark our lives right now. We pray that you would guide us through this difficult yet hope-filled passage in Mark's gospel. Through it, make us more like you, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 13, if you haven't turned there already. Mark 13, verses 24 through 37. This is the lectionary, gospel lectionary reading for this morning. Uh, And since we haven't been in Mark's gospel, I do need to set it in context. And it's a pretty striking passage, so I have to do a bit of work to, to really get us there. In Mark 13, Jesus and the disciples are in Jerusalem for Passover, and the Passover hasn't happened yet, but they're looking forward to it, and this is the last time Jesus would be in Jerusalem for Passover, at least before the resurrection. The chapter is a record of his teaching to his disciples, some of his teaching during this time, and at the beginning of Mark 13, the disciples are looking at Herod's temple in Jerusalem, and they're gawking at it, at its majesty, at its glory. And Jesus tells the disciples not to gawk at the temple because it would soon be destroyed. Now, the Gospel of Mark was written probably in the 70s, the 1970s, no, the 70s AD. And in 70 AD, the Roman emperor Titus led a force into Jerusalem that destroyed the temple and the whole city. So it seems that Jesus, in this context, around 33 AD, is predicting something that would happen about 37 years later, but something that Mark's audience, the audience of the gospel, had already seen happen. Do you understand the timing? Jesus, it seems, is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but He also seems to be talking about the destruction of his body in a couple of days. And even beyond this, one could say that he's talking about a destruction that would happen at the end of days, but we will talk about that in a minute. So the disciples ask what signs will precede these events so they can be ready. And Jesus tells them about false messiahs, about wars, earthquakes, famines, And he encourages them to be on guard, since at this time they'll be persecuted, brought before rulers, tried, things like that. Jesus urges the disciples to testify boldly in the midst of all of this, and to endure with faith until the end. Now the last sign that he mentions, and he says, when you see this, you'll know that this time has come, is that the abomination of desolation, you can read this in Mark 13, The abomination of desolation will be present in the temple. Now, this is a specific reference 
to the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, who sacrificed a pig in the temple hundreds of years later during the Maccabean period. So Jesus is not referring to that ruler, but to a future figure, Titus, who would basically do the same thing, a Gentile who would come into the temple to destroy it. And so that is the context of our passage. So now let's read our selection starting at verse 24, and hopefully that background will make sense of it. So Mark 13, verses 24 through 37, as you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's word? But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven." From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. You may be seated. So before we work through this passage verse by verse, let me just remind you, friends, that this gospel was written for a very particular purpose purpose. This gospel wasn't just written by some scholar in an office who was curious about historical events and wanted to publish a volume. There was a real Christian community composed of Jews and Gentiles in the 70s AD who were facing persecution by the emperor Nero, Vespasian, and then his son Titus. They were, they were being martyred persecuted for their faith. And so Mark writes a story collecting the sayings and miracles of Jesus all the way to his death on the cross in order to encourage this real community to remain faithful until the end. This gospel then was written to encourage the devotion, the faith of a flesh and blood group of Christians. Now, sometimes it's hard to remember this as we study it today, but friends, these were not written like scholarly volumes today, a notch on a a writer's resume. These were written with a pastoral intention, and I think that's essential to the interpretation of this passage. 
There are three sections here in the ESV. We have three headings. The coming of the Son of Man, the lesson of the fig tree, no one knows that day or hour. And there are a number of Old Testament texts that are cited. The Daniel text is, of course, cited. Revelation is a text that parallels this, but was probably written after Mark. But there are some passages from Isaiah, even Amos and Joel, that I'll try to mention as we go through. But this gospel is written to Jews and Gentiles who were familiar with the Old Testament. And so these parallel passages are essential to understanding what's being said. So first, let's look at verses 24 through 27. Starting at verse 24, it says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Now, I just laid out what I think that tribulation is. The real experience faced by Jews and Christians in the Mediterranean world being persecuted, but Jews especially seeing their temple, their city, utterly destroyed. The sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, this is a direct quotation of Isaiah 13.10. And Isaiah 13 is what's called the oracle against Babylon. So Babylon, friends, destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 586 B.C. So 640 some odd years before the Romans destroyed it. This happened in Israel's past. So Jesus is citing a passage in Isaiah that refers to the destruction of Jerusalem by another nation, And that whole chapter is basically a proclamation of God's judgment upon Babylon and his promise that the nation of Babylon would eventually be met with the wrath of God and would face doom. It talks about the Persians rising up and displacing Babylon as the superpower at the time. And of course, that's exactly what happened. So Jesus, in speaking into this context about the Romans destroying Jerusalem, refers to a story in Israel's past where another nation destroyed Jerusalem and then they were utterly judged. Verse 25, the stars will be falling from heaven, continuing this imagery, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. This is a quotation from Isaiah 34, verse 4. And in this chapter, we read about God's judgment, not only of Babylon, but of all the nations. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Assyria, fill in the blank. All the nations that would oppress God's people and destroy the sanctuary in Jerusalem would be utterly judged, would meet God's wrath, and would experience His vengeance And the readers of Mark's gospel are certainly familiar with these texts. And so they know what Jesus is saying. He's saying what the Romans are doing to you is exactly what the Babylonians did. And like the Babylonians, the Romans too will meet their fate. Encouraging the people to view this not as the end of the world, but as part of God's unfolding plan, a plan that shows that God is in control. Verse 26, then they will see 
It's hard to know who they are. It might be the powers in the heavens, the stars falling, but we will all see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. You probably noticed that this is an exact quotation from Daniel chapter 7. And the Son of Man was this figure in Jewish history that was thought to come from the heavens and bring God's restoration, his judgment of evil nations, and his renewal of all the earth, renewal of the covenant with Israel. And Jesus in Mark's gospel time and again intimates that he is the Son of Man. So for him to say this means that I, Jesus, I will come at the command of my Father and I will vanquish all the enemies that fight against you, including the Romans. But this, friends, is not meant to tell these Christians and Jews when the end would come. It's not meant to satisfy their curiosity. It's meant to produce faith and trust in them right then and there. That's the point. Verse 27, sending out the angels, gathering his elect from the four winds. We see the same language in Revelation, but you see this also in many Jewish texts, some of which are in the Old Testament, some which aren't, but that speak about the coming of the Son of Man to defeat God's enemies once and for all. So moving on then to the lesson of the fig tree, Jesus tells a parable. And remember that he's speaking to his disciples in 33 AD, but we're reading a gospel that was written later to real Christians. He says, From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, verse 29, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. The readers of Mark's gospel have just witnessed these things taking place. And so rather than giving in to the chaos, giving up hope, Jesus is encouraging them to interpret these things as the events preceding the victorious arrival of Christ. These events, instead of creating fear and despair in their hearts, these events are meant to inspire them to greater trust. And then we get the mysterious verse in verse 30. It says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, if you interpret all these things, not as the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but this end times story of God coming and putting all the world to rights and bringing judgment upon all of his enemies. If you interpret it that way, it's really hard to make sense of this verse. Because the disciples whom Jesus was speaking to lived out the rest of their days, the rest of their generation, and they died. And all of those things didn't come to pass. But if all these things refers to this conflict between Rome and the Jews in Jerusalem, Jesus 
is entirely trustworthy and accurate here. A generation in Jewish tradition was 40 years. And so that's why the people of Israel wander in the wilderness for 40 years to replace the generation. So Jesus says these words around 33 AD and 37 years later, the Romans invade Jerusalem. Within 40 years, within a generation, what he's talking about takes place. I think the readers of Mark's gospel would see Jesus, almost 40 years ago, predicting events that happened in their time. And their trust in Christ would be enhanced as they see him predicting accurately the future. Verse 31 says, Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will not pass away. Empires, earthly civilizations may fall, but my promises, my words will never fall, will never fail. Jesus, all throughout this passage, is trying to encourage the hearts of his disciples, at 33, as they're about to see him be crucified, but also the hearts of Christians later on who are reading it. And I would say even 2,000 years later, our hearts today as we are reading it. And lastly, we get this final section, verses 32 through 37. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Many Christian Scholars, theologians, early writers have had trouble with this verse because it suggests that there is something that the Son, Jesus, does not know. And we claim the Son to be fully God. I don't have time to go through all the arguments. I don't think that's the point of this passage. The point is that the timing cannot be discerned by us. If, if you could know when all of these things would take place, you wouldn't have to be ready all the time. If it was happening on a Saturday, Monday through Thursday, you could do whatever you want. Friday, make sure you're ready. The point is, no one is to know so that we are always ready. And we're to interpret any crisis, any conflict between nations, any hostility toward our faith as potentially signs that Christ could return at any second. The point has never been for us to know when he's coming, but to act as if he is coming right now. That's the point. This is not a treatise about the end times, about how to discern when the end of the world will come. It's meant to encourage us to be ready all the time. And he then gives this parable. It's like a man going on a journey, verse 34. This is tapping into realities that were familiar to the disciples and to the readers of Mark's gospel. And he would leave home and put the servants in charge, commanding the doorkeeper to stay awake. Verse 35, stay awake, therefore, for you don't know when the master will return. Could be in the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows in the morning. But make sure that he doesn't come back suddenly to find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. That last verse gives us a glimpse into Mark as the author. Jesus, it wouldn't make 
as much sense for him to have different groups of disciples. I say to you, I say to them, I say they were all kind of one group. But I think Mark, the author, is saying to this congregation that received this text, I'm saying the same thing to you that I say to other Christians to whom I write and send documents like this. Stay awake, stay alert, be ready. What I'd like to do now is briefly look at the two texts that were read before the sermon. Now, one of the texts, Daniel 7, comes before it and, of course, is cited in it. But Revelation 6 and 7 is kind of a parallel and interpretation of Mark. It comes after it. So we won't spend too much time in these passages, but you can turn there if you'd like. Daniel 7, verses 9 through 14. In this passage, Daniel, the prophet, receives a vision, a vision of four beasts. And I won't read all of the vision, but these four beasts are thought to represent four nations. Babylon, Persia, the nation that was ruling during Daniel's time, then Greece, and then Rome, four nations. Daniel then sees... The Ancient of Days, that's what he calls this figure seated on a throne, and the Son of Man being given authority by the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man is being given the authority to judge, to destroy this fourth beast, which is thought to represent Rome, and each of these beasts would replace the one that came before. So Rome, you could say, stands for all of these empires that oppressed God's people. So Daniel has this vision hundreds of years before the time of Christ that the Son of Man would be given authority by this Ancient of Days figure to bring judgment on this worldly empire who we now know to be Rome. This might sound similar to the text we read last week, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. We have God the Father, it seems, giving authority to God the Son to vanquish all of our enemies. So Jesus is citing this passage in Daniel and is suggesting that the Son of Man in that text is Him. And that he has been sent by his father to bring judgment on all the nations that wage war against God's people. In this case, the Roman Empire itself. I think that would have been so powerful to these Jews who are familiar with these texts. And they would have seen that what's happening in Jerusalem is part of God's unfolding plan. The passage in Revelation is very similar And often Daniel and Revelation are studied together because they're the same genre, apocalyptic literature. And in Revelation 6, verse 12, we read about the opening of a sixth seal of judgment. There's a lot of imagery in the book. But five seals have come before this one, and the seals are representing various judgments upon evil nations and groups upon the earth. And in this sixth seal, there is mention of an earthquake 
the sun becoming black, the moon becoming like blood, and the stars falling. Verse 13, it says, like a fig tree shedding its winter fruit. So the same kind of language from Mark and from Isaiah about the fig tree with its branches and leaves. You read about kings and rulers hiding from the wrath of the one seated on the throne, it seems, the Ancient of Days, God the Father. And at the time of the writing of Revelation, the Emperor Nero was persecuting Christians. And so a lot of the language about a beast or a beast upon the earth is, is really referring to Nero, who was putting Christians to death. But it can also apply, friends, to any empire, nation, or ruler that is acting beastly and that is persecuting God's people, just like the Romans did at this time. So lastly, there's mention of four angels, four corners, four winds, just like we get in the passage in Mark. And the sealing of the elect, the protection of God's people, amidst all of this chaos, we get language of of protecting and sealing this group of 144,000, which of course is a symbolic number, 12 times 12,000, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples. But this is meant to encourage these Christians who are being persecuted by saying that God will destroy all these nations and emperors who wage war against you, and you will be sealed and protected. You won't miss out on God's kingdom. I think all these texts, friends, refer to the chaos that people were experiencing in the first century and the chaos, I think, that we're experiencing today. Advent waiting takes place in the midst of chaos. And it's a chaos that, at times, almost overwhelms us. These Christians in the first century, they needed a text like Mark's gospel to keep them afloat. You could argue that Almost all of the texts in the New Testament were written to real communities of Christians who are struggling, who need help to keep going, just like us. It's tempting to want to give up or give in to think that all of these random forces will will not be ordered, will not be dealt with by Christ in the end. But Jesus encourages us to stay awake to keep the flame alive, to face the chaos, to name it, but to continue trusting in Him. My hope this Advent is quite simple, not easy, but simple. It's that our wakefulness would be strengthened, that together as a community of believers living in a chaotic world, who are just so close to the edge of losing our faith, that we together would look to Christ, would strengthen each other's faith so we can hold on until he returns. My hope is that we would give up trying to fix the chaos ourselves, that we'd resist giving into it, that we'd trust Christ and let him 
order it into something new. Let's pray. Lord, we look to you, Jesus, and we pray that you would give us resolve, that you would give us faith. Help us to see how your people throughout history have faced trials and tribulations, yet have somehow managed to hang on. As we celebrate communion together, as we come to the table as one family, strengthen our faith in you and help us through these dark times to continue proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, our source of hope, our source of life amidst the chaos. In Jesus' name, amen.